0: Hey everybody, this is your host Matt Castellini and welcome to Chicago Capital. I absolutely loved recording this episode. I cannot think of a better person to speak to the history of the Chicago tech and VC ecosystem than Mark Ackler, who is the co-founder and managing director of Math Venture Partners. Mark has an incredibly eclectic and storied career, which we discuss at length. He spent time driving innovation and sales at large organizations such as Apple and Redbox, and he also co-founded a number of of startups throughout the 80s and 90s. Mark began his investing career as a VC in the Chicagoland area at Kettle Partners, where he invested in the likes of Sure Payroll and Novara, which both saw outstanding exits. He then co-founded Math Venture Partners in 2014, where he's invested in some of my personal favorite early-stage technology businesses, such as Cholly, Acorns, and Built-In. Mark is also a lifelong Chicagoan, and we discussed the changes that both the city and the startup ecosystem have undergone. And as you'll probably be able to Glean from our conversation. As a Southsider, Mark does not recognize the Chicago Cubs as an official baseball club in Chicago, a topic that I need to revisit with him when he returns to the show. This is a fantastic conversation for anyone who is passionate about the entrepreneurial journey and Chicago. With all of that said, here's my conversation with Mark Ackler. Mark, great to see you. Thank you so much for coming on, sir. This is an interview I definitely wish we could be doing in person, but Nonetheless, it's a pleasure to have you on Chicago Capital.
1: Matt, thank you so much. It's an honor, and yes, I wish we could be in person. (laughs) I I miss seeing all my friends, that's for sure.
0: Soon enough, I think, soon enough. But I'd love to kick today off by having you walk us through your background. And to start, I know you actually grew up on the southeast side of Chicago in Jeffrey Manor. I'd love to hear about that and the neighborhood you grew up in. Yeah.
1: So most, many Chicagoans don't know Jeffrey Manor or the Southeast side. So yes, there is a Southeast side of Chicago. And I grew up there in the sixties. I I loved it. It was a very working class community at the time. Most of the dads worked in the steel mills or in the factories around there. And my joke is to the East of us was the U S steel works. And so you could just this is before the environmental protection so the black smoke was just pouring into the neighborhood and to the south of us is was the uh, uh, garbage dump for the city of chicago which is still there that's the garbage dump for the city of chicago so when the wind was coming from the south you know it was pretty pretty noticeable but to the west of us was the jays potato chip factory
0: Okay. And, and,
1: and it was great. Like when the wind was coming in from the West, it's it like awesome. We were always hungry, but I loved growing up on the South side of Chicago. It was just, you know, it was a really, it was a really tight community and it was a very diverse community. So imagine, you know, it was a Mexican, Polish, Jewish. I didn't know there was such thing as a Protestant. They were, they were either Catholics or Jews who lived in the neighborhood and, You know, it was just, I loved growing up there.
0: And, you know, I think people are really a product of their environment. And I, you know, where you grew up plays such a huge role in that. What values do you think that growing up in Jeffrey Manor instilled in you that you carried with you through the rest of your life?
1: Tolerance for other people. It was a very diverse and I was, you know, I lived through the white flight when I, in third grade there were maybe three black kids in the class. And in fourth grade, there were maybe, you know, five white kids in the class. The neighborhood, there there was a point in time where the neighborhood just completely flipped over. And, you know, it it really brought home and taught me uh, to appreciate and respect and be tolerant of everybody's and their points of view and their backgrounds. And, you know, it was, we all had to work hard you know, the dads in the neighborhood, most of them were worked in the factories. Many of them had second jobs. You know, there was no luxuries. It was a, you know, it was a hard scrabble. Today, Jeffrey Manor is unfortunately one of the toughest neighborhoods in the city. It was a tough, it was a tough neighborhood, but we learned how to work hard.
0: And from Jeffrey Manor, you went to Purdue for undergrad and I'd love to hear your professional background, some of the highlights and how that led you to VC. And I'm also going to assume that you're a White Sox fan. Okay, Is
1: there there another club in (laughs) this?
0: Okay, that's my one bad question of the whole recording, I promise. That's the only one. We'll touch on that later, I'm sure. But I'd love if you could walk us through your professional background and what led you to venture capital in Chicago.
1: Well, it's dangerous to ask an old guy a question like that. I'll try to give you the concise version. But it started off with my dad. You know, I was very lucky. My dad was an entrepreneur and he had several businesses. You know, he had an engineering tool and die company, small, very small business. And then he had a hot dog shop in on the south side of Chicago. And, you know, all through my childhood and young adult, My dad was always trying different businesses and some worked and some didn't work. But I got the spirit of entrepreneurship and that spirit of not being afraid and being comfortable with risk. I got that uh, much to my wife's chagrin. And so, you know, my journey leaving Purdue, I, I don't tell this often, I ended up in Switzerland. I built a bar made out of snow and an igloo. On top of a mountain in Sambridge Switzerland, and I was a, a bartender. People would literally ski to my bar. Uh, it was, you know, made of snow, and I was a bartender for ski season until it melted. Uh, so that, that's that's how I started off life.
0: So West Lafayette to Switzerland. That's that is quite the trip.
1: Oh yeah, it was great stories about you know, being a bartender, and but from there I came back to Chicago, and my dad. I think he was worried about me. He said, you know, these personal computers are really starting to take off. Why don't we open up a retail store? And my dad and I opened up one of the very first retail stores in the country. And we were Apple. We are an Apple dealer. And then we were IBM when IBM PCs first came out. In fact, I was in 1981, I was in Boca Raton for the unveiling of the original IBM PC. So that's how I got into computers. Is you know, my dad sort of my dad was the visionary. And then I became good friends with the Apple reps who called on the store. And one of the Apple reps went back to Cupertino and there was a job opening at Apple to be the dealer expert for the Apple II division. And so he called me up and said, I think I've got this great job. Why don't you come interview? And I must have Fooled them. They hired me, but but I, ha- I had a problem. The problem was my wife, who's from Chicago, and has a big family here in Chicago, and we had just gotten married, and we're still married. We're still married. But I said, "There." I said to my to my wife, "Hey, great news! I just got the job of a lifetime <laughs> at Apple." And my wife burst into tears, and she said to me, "If I." would have known that you were going to make me move to California, I wouldn't have married you. And so I, I made her a promise. I said, let's give it a year. And if you're unhappy after a year, we can, we, we'll move back. And I had the best job ever. And so two days after I started my job, they had a reorg, and I became the Apple IIc introduction manager. And I knew nothing about marketing, and I knew nothing about it. I, I was perfectly suited to be the dealer guy because I was a dealer. But I knew nothing about marketing. But anyway, so I became the Apple IIc Introduction Manager, and I loved it. And I had a great year, and I learned a ton, and I have all sorts of really good Steve Jobs stories, and it was a blast. And a year to the day, the moving van was in front of the house, and my wife said, if you want to stay married to me, I'm going to be in Chicago. I go, okay, fine. (laughs) Right. So I gave my notice at Apple and I moved back to Chicago. But I had a great time and a great year. And from that, I got the entrepreneurial bug. And I started a company called the Whitewater Group in 1985 with a partner. We built the second product ever to ship for Windows 1.0. It was an object-oriented programming language. We built that up. We took in venture capital in 1987, you know, when there was no venture capital community. I think there were 20 VC firms in the entire country. And we built that up. We sold, we sold it to Semantic in 1991. And that was just when CD-ROMs were first coming out. And my our two oldest kids were babies at the time. And I wanted to teach them how to read. So we started a a company called Imagination Pilots to do educational software. That didn't work. The educational software piece of it didn't work. And I ended up starting and joining another company afterwards called Kinesoft Development. And we had a genius guy who figured out how to take Sega and Nintendo scrolling action arcade games and bring it over to Windows 95. Much longer story, but... At the end of the day, we started that company in August, and in May, we sold it to SoftBank. It was SoftBank's second acquisition in the United States, and we had a bidding war between Intel, Sega, IBM, and at the last second, Bill Gates personally brokered a deal between us and SoftBank. Great outcome. And I started off life as a high school history teacher, and so that's what, that was my degree. And I had this fantasy that I would go back and teach when I had the resources to and the flexibility to do that. And when I sold my company and I had the flexibility and the resources, I sort of took a step back and did an inventory. And I realized what I was really passionate about and good at was starting businesses, and that the best way to leverage my passion my capital, but most importantly, my working experience was as a VC. And so in 1996, 97, I partnered with a couple of friends and we started a venture capital fund called Kettle Partners. And that was how I got into the VC business.
0: And that was based in Chicago and making investments just in the Midwest or, you know, what was sort of the mandate?
1: It was Midwest centric. But we invested all around the country. And, you know, it, it was technology. So we were investing in software technology companies.
0: And 96, 97, were there many other VC firms in Chicago at that time? A few,
1: not many. There, were, there was maybe, you know, four or five that were were active at the time. And it was the dot-com days. So it was a frothy bubble. It kind of reminds me of some time around now, but it was great. So the first fund, we had a lot of fun. We had a couple of companies go public. Life was good. The second fund, we closed in January of 2000. And the dot-com crash happened in March of 2000. And we did something really unusual. A year went by and we just we realized that the model wasn't working because when the crash happened, capital basically dried up. And as a small fund, when our portfolio companies were going to go seek their next round of funding, either it was going to be a brutal down round or they weren't going to be able to be successful. And what we said, we had made eight investments. We deployed about half our capital. And we went back to our LPs and we said, you know, we don't think the model is working. And we are going to release you from the remaining 50% of your commitment. But we're going to continue to, we're going to stop taking fees. And we're going to continue to sit on these boards of these eight portfolio companies until their conclusion and we did we stopped making any we released them a 50% of their commitment we stopped taking any fees and we sat on boards for another 10 years and we were very fortunate that you know, we had one company in particular sure payroll which is a very important part of the story and sure payroll had a, had a great exit and that returned the whole fund and we ended up being in the top quartile for our vintage year of venture funds which means nothing. <laughs> All that means is we were we were in the black and we were able to get our LPs their money back, you know, 13 years later. I don't know what the IRR, we never I didn't have the courage to calculate the IRR on that, but the fact that we were actually in the top quartile for our vintage year was it was a moral victory. But more importantly, it was from a values perspective, we did the right thing by our LPs. And we we hung in there and we delivered, you know, we, we protected our LP's interests for a decade. And we earned a lot of LP goodwill, obviously, for doing that. So my joke is, I think I've had a fun and eclectic career and my wife thinks I can't hold a job. So it's right, so, so like after, after Kettle, I became a co-founder of another startup called ME Solutions, E-M-I which ended up having a very good exit. It was you know another I've been very fortunate. I've had several companies with exits north of of 100 million dollars. So that was a long difficult road, but it was a good road. And by the way, a lot of times in these podcasts we talk about success, but we don't talk about failure. I should also tell you that I got fired as the CEO of ME Solutions. And that was one of the worst days of my life. It's a much longer story of why I got fired, but I'll, I'll cut to the chase, which I think the board of directors made the right decision. And the challenge was, I, I, there were two, two challenges. One, it had been five years. And it was taking a while for the company to hit its inflection point, which it ultimately did. And there was a friction between co-founders that I wasn't helping to make better. In fact, I made it worse. I and mean, If you want to, we can dive into the longer story of it. But I have zero regrets in my life. I'm very fortunate. I accept at ME Solutions, if I could wind the clock back, I actually would have handled myself a little bit differently in that situation. So one is the founders were fighting. And as the CEO, I'm responsible and I didn't make it better. And two, we had a big deal with Optum Healthcare that our champion left two days before the deal was supposed to be signed. And it was a year that we were doing, I don't know, like about 5 to $6 million in revenue. And that was a $15 million deal. So it was a really big deal. And the deal fell apart on my watch. And I made the classic mistake. I usually under and over-deliver, but I made the mistake of being so excited. I got my board all pumped up about it. So then after MB Solutions, I went to Redbox, where I was part of the executive team and the head of innovation and also the interim head of marketing, and then math ventures.
0: Michael Alter is a professor of mine at- Oh, yeah, right. right. Thanks. I'm in his entrepreneurial selling class, and I have a question that was generated from that class. Actually, I'd love to circle back on later, but your first foray into venture capital, obviously, you had a ton of goodwill built up with these LPs. You spent some time at Redbox, but then when you went back into the VC world, when you decided to start math, did that LP Goodwill roll over into math? Did that help sort of, sure, of launch course. math and then maybe talk about what what was the thesis originally behind math and so listeners can better understand um, math venture partners?
1: So the genesis of the fund is my partner that I started the company with is Troy Hennecoff and Troy was the original CEO of SurePayroll. So Michael Alter, who you mentioned, he was the head of sales and then when Troy left, he be- he took over as CEO of SurePayroll. So my joke is I was the lead investor of SurePayroll and I led the fir- the A round and Troy loved me and then I led the B round a couple years after the dot com crash and it was a down round and my joke is Troy's still talking to me. <laughs> it's a
0: relationship and, built to last,
1: right? So we, you know, Troy and I—we've known each other for 20 years. We've gone through thick and thin together. We 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 know the measure of each other. And when I left Redbox, Troy was the managing director of TechStars here in Chicago, and Troy was like. Nah, nah. We gotta do a venture fund. He goes, I'm part of Techstars. I get access to all this incredible deal flow. Like you and I, we've got all these relationships. We gotta leverage that. Let's go start a venture fund. And I was kind of like, well, you know, it's really hard. It's really hard to raise money. you know, being a venture, everyone thinks being a venture fund is a you know, is is glamorous. And I've already done it once. I know the truth. Like, I know. How hard it is to both raise a fund and to actually, and and the risks involved. You know, the venture business, by its very definition, is there's a high failure coefficient. And so I was like, Try, "I don't know." And Troy's like, "Yeah, yeah, we got to do this." So finally, okay, fine. He, he convinced me to do it, and and I'm so glad I did. It's been such a joy being partners with Troy, and then we brought in a, a third partner, Dana Wright. You know, I just love my partners to death. It is so much fun helping entrepreneurs and helping leverage our experience in building and growing and scaling businesses and creating jobs. I am just so grateful to be able to do that. And to answer your next question about what our investment thesis is, so we're early stage software technology investors. We're primarily B2B. We do a little bit of B2C, but we're primarily uh, B2B. And we like to be the first real round of institutional money. I don't know if you call it seed or seed plus or A. Everybody has a different terminology. But whatever that first real institutional round is, that's where we like to to be. We are, from a geography perspective, once again, we're Midwest-centric. But we invest all over the country and we invest in Canada as well. We have a particular investment thesis, which is we love companies who have an unfair advantage in customer acquisition and sales. We have a saying, which is the greatest product in the world without customers is a great product, but it's not a business. And the brutal truth is, that according to the National Venture Capital Association, of all the companies that receive venture capital funding, 67% of those companies return less than 100% of the money they received. There is a 67% failure rate. And our joke is nobody ever went out of business because they had too many customers, maybe with the exception of MoviePass. (laughs) But, but, But but assuming the underlying unit economic model works,
0: right, 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 <laughs> right.
1: Nobody ever went out of business because they had too many customers, and and the truth about human nature is we gravitate towards our strengths and to, to the activities that we like, and we kind of avoid things that we don't like. And most entrepreneurs are really good at technology. Most technology entrepreneurs are really good at tech, or they're financially oriented, they're really good at finance. Very few entrepreneurs are good at sales. And so what we look for, when we say leverage in the sales model, what we mean is for every company, it's something different. It could be channel partnerships. It could be they're really good at paid advertising or SEO or it could be direct enterprise sales, or there's governmental compliance and they have leverage because somebody is forced to take an action, right? Whatever it is, every company has it different, but we love entrepreneurs who can speak the language of their customers and who really truly understand how to reach their customers.
0: Speaking the language of your customers, do you typically see that in founders who have a deep domain expertise? Is that something that you look for? Is it a must-have? How do you guys think about the background of these founders?
1: Yeah, domain expertise is helpful, but it has to be the right domain expertise. So I'll give you an example with ME Solutions. One of my partners, the, the, the guy who came up with the original idea, was an attorney who became a doctor? And he, when we reimagined the process of informed consent, and we created an experience that was loving and fun. His wife was the creative director at Jellyvision, which was a game developer. We took some of the user interface methodology of the game developer skill set and we applied it to informed consent. And I thought, When I joined them, I did not come from a medical background, but I thought, oh, my partner has, he's a doctor. He's got the domain expertise. He understands medicine and the language of medicine. And it was true. He did. He understood how to be a doctor. What he didn't understand was the business of medicine. And so while he understood the point of view of the physician and he understood the point of view of the patient, how to sell into a hospital is a completely different set of skills and experiences and language and leverage. And so, in fact, this is an interesting story. When we started ME Solutions, we thought we had a patient education tool and our customer was the doctor, and we tried to sell one doctor at a time. And that went nowhere. I mean, that just took forever. Like, shoot me, I never want to sell one doctor at a time. And it took us a really long time. And ultimately, what we what we came to understand is that the medical malpractice insurance provider for the hospital, when there was a medical malpractice claim, it wasn't the Doctor, it was the hospital that bore the brunt of the claim. And it was the malpractice insurance provider for the hospital who actually was the deep pocket who paid out for that claim. And so when we went to the malpractice insurance providers, they loved it. And they're the ones who said to the hospitals, We want you to use this. And then the hospital forced the doctor to use it. And, you know, we had a business. And the product never changed. The product was exactly the same. But we thought we had a patient education product. Turned out we had a risk management product. And our customer was the malpractice insurance company. And and that's how we started to get real traction. And so to answer your question, domain expertise is important, but it has to also be the right domain expertise. So I'll give you an example. I, I like to ask enterprise salespeople, who's your champion? So always somebody different? And I ask the question, well, what are the KPIs for your champion? And I get a blank look. I go, well, when your champion gets a bonus at the end of the year, what's it based upon? What are their metrics? How are they measured? Because human nature is also we gravitate towards how we're measured and how we're compensated. And so, like, if you don't, part of the challenge that all entrepreneurs have, myself included, is we're so laser focused on us and and, and on our product or our service, And, and it's really hard to have empathy and to get into the heart And mind and soul of your customer, and really truly understand what's important to them and what moves them. And those are the entrepreneurs that we want to back.
0: And I think this is a topic you've talked about extensively in the past empathy rules, understanding your customer, understanding their needs. And I also think you are a huge proponent of doing your homework, doing the necessary homework before you show up. For founders, if I'm a founder coming to pitch math ventures, What is your advice on, you know, how I should be doing my homework? And I guess just in general, could you expand on that thought that you've talked about in the past of making sure you always do your homework no matter the situation?
1: Yeah. So do your homework, like really deeply, thoroughly do your homework. Spend the time to understand who it is and what motivates the person sitting across the table from you and bring a gift. And what I mean by bring a gift is add value to the conversation. give something back in return. And so I'm shocked by the number of entrepreneurs who come to a meeting unprepared with us. They don't know what our investment thesis is, they don't know what we look for, they don't know how they don't talk to the CEOs of our portfolio companies. They just show up. They just go, "Hey, I'm an entrepreneur, here's my story." And I view that as a proxy if you know, arguably a meeting with a VC is one of the most important meetings that they're going to have to be able to fund their business. And if they don't take the time to prepare for a meeting with us, they're not going to take the time to prepare for a meeting with an important sales call. And I got really pissed about the lack of preparation. And so we did something, I think really unique in the venture world is we wrote a six page document The founders checklist. I think there's a product roadmap. I think there's also an emotional roadmap. There's an emotional journey. And I wanted to put myself in the point of view of the entrepreneur, and I wanted to empower the entrepreneur. And so we wrote in very simple and plain English: what do we care about? Like if you're gonna come to meet with math, here's our founders checklist, here's how you this is our investment thesis. This is how we think. This is how you should come prepared. This is like, these are the kinds of questions we're going to ask you. And so we put it all in in, in, and it's right there on our website. And still we get entrepreneurs who show up and they don't even bother to look at our website or read the founder's checklist. And I guarantee you, we don't fund them. But I think this roadmap of empathy, and by the way, I talked to Entrepreneurs about this all the time, whether it's hiring, like how does a person feel each step of the way they're going through your hiring process? Or if it's technology, I really believe in simplicity. I believe that most products, most tech products are over-engineered and they have way too many features. And the reason they have too many features is because the tech people who build them don't really spend enough time with the customer and they don't know what's really truly important. So they throw in the kitchen sink. And I always ask the question, well, how do you want somebody to feel at this step at this moment in time? What's the emotional journey? And I get this crazy look from, you know, software developers, like, What are you talking about? You know, I think it's really important.
0: I, I wanted to switch gears because, and correct me if I misstate this, but I think something you've said is nobody went out of business for having too many customers. And that's such a focal point of an early stage company, it was something that, and Professor Alter has spoken about this in his class as well. Most startups die not of starvation, but because of drowning, essentially, spreading the team too thin, almost too much customer demand at the very early stages, and they can't scale and they can't meet that demand. So how do you think about weighing those two almost conflicting struggles that founders have to go through?
1: I'm not sure I would fully agree with Michael about most companies are drowning in customer demand. I, I think many companies are struggle with product market fit. And there's another a good friend of mine and pro- fellow professor at Northwestern at Kellogg named Suzanne Muchin. And she always says, you have to have a pointy point of view. And what you say no to is every bit as important as what you say yes to. And so oftentimes I'll see entrepreneurs pitch me and they'll say, our product can do X, Y, Z. And when I hear that, I think to myself, this is somebody who doesn't know their customer yet. They don't really understand product market fit. And it's not because they have too much business. It's because they really don't understand their customer and they can't prioritize and focus. And I, I think that prioritization and focus is really essential.
0: I'd... Love to have both of you on at some point. I think the two of you together could give an unbelievable, almost masterclass in customer acquisition. One thing that occurred to me, I feel like going back to the, you know, the ski bar, going back to the Apple Store in Boca Raton, it almost makes so much sense when you hear your full story that customer acquisition, the customer first is the MO for Math Venture Partners and it seems to be how you've crafted your career and what interests you.
1: You know, it's interesting when my dad and I started our computer retail store, even though it was a retail store, I spent 95, 95% of our business was direct sales, mostly to larger companies, because we were the only place you could buy an IBM PC. So I spent the first two years of my business life as a salesperson calling on large accounts. And I, I think any entrepreneur, I like to me having those first two years in sales was so helpful because it forced me to listen to the customer and to understand the customer. And I think the very best salespeople are problem solvers. Like the very best salespeople aren't just trying to push, you know, push a product. They understand the customer, and they understand the customer's needs, and they're there as a partner to solve the customer's problems and to help the customer do better. And that mindset, which I that got formed very early in my career, I mean it was my first job, my first real job, I think that was the foundation for everything else in my career was having that those first two years of direct enterprise sales.
0: Before we move on to the broader Chicago ecosystem, I just wanted to ask about the Math 100. I think it's something unique you guys do, and I'd love it if you could just touch upon it.
1: Yeah, so the vast majority of capital we deploy, we like to be the first real institutional money in, and we typically write $1 to $2 million checks. But we have a program called Math 100, and there we'll write 100 k checks. And it's in the earlier stages, whether it's seed or pre-seed, where the idea is not fully baked, where there's still some product market fit to be worked out. Typically, the product is built, there's some revenue, but it's still early. It's still very early. I love this program. The reason I, I love it so much is... First of all, in our second fund, we're going to do approximately 25 of these 100K investments. So it really gives us a chance to literally spread the wealth and help a whole bunch of entrepreneurs. But for us, we get to put a little bit of money in, get to spend some real quality time with these entrepreneurs, help them grow their business, see the product market fit, get to know the customers. And we think of it almost like buying an option because as we start to see the company gather momentum, we're the first in, right? Like we're like, we're there where we know the company, we've built a relationship, we've built trust. And oftentimes we can preempt and get in and get in with more knowledge sooner. And so in our first fund, we made 20 math, 100 investments and six out of that 20 became math core investments, our larger math investments. And so the program uh, has worked out fantastic. we're, We're very excited about it.
0: Could you give an example of how you guys are able to plug into those investments? I feel like everybody at math has a great set of operating skills, and most of you are operators almost at heart. You know, you have long storied careers of operating. What are some of the ways in which you're able to plug into these really early stage companies and assist?
1: Yeah, every day. So money is just money. You know, we're really respectful of how difficult it is to raise money from, from VCs. And I've, I've been an, I've been an operator, I've raised venture capital. I know how difficult it is, but at the end of the day, it's just money. Our leverage isn't our capital. Our leverage is our operating skills and experience. And, you know, Troy, Dana, and I, we're all operators and we spend inordinate amounts of time with our portfolio companies. I'll give you an extreme example. One of our portfolio companies is based in Dallas, Texas. And Dana, they were a couple of years ago, a few years back, they were growing at a really fast rate. And Dana moved down to Texas, became the interim COO for nine months. And I mean, literally worked full time there. And that's an extreme example, right? But, but what's also interesting about how math is structured differently than other venture funds, and, and this company is a good example of that, is we're all equal partners. In many venture funds, one partner is assigned a deal, and it's their deal, and that's it. Because of the way math is structured, the way we think about it is we all have different skill sets and experiences. And whatever is important from the company's point of view, it's about the company. It's not about each of us. So, in that particular deal, I knew the CEO was the president of a publicly traded company called Reach Local. He and I had been buddies for years. But when he came to to pitch math, Troy fell in love with the company and Troy said, ooh, 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 I really want to do this. I have the skills that I think can really help. I went, fine, great. So Troy became the board member, not me. And then when Dana went down and became the acting COO and spent nine months in the company and really got to know the company inside and out, then Troy stepped off the board and Dana became the board member for math. And so I guess an example, and we do this all the time at math where once again, it's about the company and the needs of the company. It's not about us or our egos. And so I can't tell you how many companies Troy has gone in and made a material difference in, or Dana has, or me, you know, one of our portfolio companies is a Chicago company called ApriVita. And they were struggling. And I had the insight because I had a healthcare background, I had the insight to point them in the direction of the Joint Commission. In this case, it was, it was a healthcare deal. And they were really lucky enough to, you know, all the credit goes to them. They were, they executed flawlessly. They did a perfect job and they won this really important deal. But I had the insight because I understood the industry to point them in that direction. We do this every day. That's our job. That's our value add. The value, the, the hard part, you know, Yes, it's hard to source deals. Yes, it's hard to figure out which deals to invest in. But we earn our money, you know, the 7, 10, 12 years it takes to build a business. We're in the trenches with our CEOs day in, day out. That's how we earn our money.
0: I love that comment too, you know, money is just money. It's almost as if capital has become commoditized in a way in order to impress the really up-and-coming entrepreneurs, you have to be able to offer more than just a check. And I think that's maybe some of the ways that the venture capital landscape has changed over, you know, the last 5 to 10 years, but I'd love to focus in specifically on the Chicago community, the Chicago ecosystem. What changes have you seen in the venture capital or the startup community here in Chicago over the last 10 years?
1: Yeah, well, so you're asking somebody who started their first business in Chicago in 1985.
0: I'm asking the right person. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> there have been profound changes and consistency as well. So the changes... First of all, the amount of capital, the number of firms and the amount of capital available to Chicago uh, entrepreneurs is dramatically improved, dramatically different today than it was even two years ago, but certainly 10 years ago. There's just way more capital and resources available, and not just capital, but you know, co-working spaces in eighteen seventy one and tech stars, all of the resources necessary. and it's it, it even goes broader. So when I did my first deal, there weren't lawyers who were familiar with venture deal. you know like no nobody had written a venture term sheet or accountants familiar with how do you, you know how do you do the accounting for software companies and the universities. you know, today, twenty years ago, at Kellogg or Booth, if you did surveys, what do you want to do when you graduate? Well, 20 years ago, people wanted to be investment bankers or they wanted to work in big consulting shops or large corporations. Less than 5% of the students wanted to be entrepreneurs. I don't know about Booth, but at Kellogg, I think it's like the last survey I saw was 35% of the students when they graduated wanted to be entrepreneurs. And so the, the B schools fundamentally Shifted their curriculum based on the, the needs of the students, and so there's even support today. The B schools are intimately involved with and supporting the entrepreneurial community. Where ten years ago there was nothing, there was no interactions. You know, today everybody wants an internship at, at you know at, at a startup. Not everybody, but you know what I mean. So there's really it, it, there's fundamental differences out there. Tell you part of what's the same though, Chicago tends to be a more conservative town. Chicago tends to be a more B2B. People can get their idea get an idea funded on, on the coast. Where here you got to have a product built and you know some traction. It, it's still a more conservative. I mean, our the bones, the roots of Chicago are still the same.
0: That fascinates me too. And I, I'm curious, just your thoughts. What do you think is the reason for that? Is is it just you know the humble Midwestern personality there that shines through? Or what do you think is the reason for? There's less unicorn chasing, I feel like, in Chicago than maybe the coasts.
1: Yeah, I don't know what's right or wrong. I, I could just tell you from my perspective, I, I like to use the Instagram. You know, when Instagram first got started... There were a thousand different photo sharing sites. I don't know. Like, how, how did you know that Instagram was going to be the one that was going to win? I didn't have any skills or experience to to, to say, "Oh yeah, Instagram's the one." Right? Now on the other side, enterprise B two B software. Well, I could add some value there. Like, I know that world. I know that space. I know how to build up. Sales strategies, channel partnerships. I know how to sell to customers. I have access to customers. You know, part of our value add too is we have a really broad network of relationships. And one of the hardest things for new startups is access to customers. And so I gave that example of Apravita. Like we can open up doors and make introductions to potential customers. Well, there I can add value. And so we tend to. You know, investors tend to invest where they know, where they have strength, where they can add value. I'll give you an example. One of the examples I use is the shared economy. I totally miss the shared economy. Totally. Like if you would have asked me 10 years ago and said there's going to be an app on your phone and you were going to call a stranger to come and pick you up in their car and there's actually going to be another stranger In the car because it's a pool. No way! I I I couldn't even in my wildest dreams imagine that. And of course, I missed it. You know, I just completely and utterly missed it. And so, you know, you tend to invest in your comfort zone.
0: No, I I think that makes total sense. And I think you know the Midwest also has the largest concentration of Fortune five hundred companies as well. So. Entrepreneurs here, many of them are coming from these industries. They're building for these industries and they see these companies in these industries as potential acquisition targets. But I just think the DNA, the makeup of Chicago is fascinating to me. And part of me wonders with the growth of something like Cameo, will more B2C companies sprout up here? Is that even necessary for the growth of the community? I I have to imagine it's only a good thing. The more entrepreneurs that want to start a business here, no matter What kind of businesses or what kind of aspirations they have for it?
1: No, of course, it's a good thing. Success begets success.
0: Right, right.
1: Right. You know, and if Cameo, hopefully Cameo has a great exit. And, you know, Steve will go and start investing in other companies where he could add value in the B2C realm. And it's a flywheel. So I'm hugely in favor. I'm rooting for Cameo. I'm rooting for them to be successful.
0: I have to ask what what drove you to teach at Kellogg, and how can we get you over to Booth? What do we have to do?
1: <laughs> well, thanks. That's kind of you to say to, to ask. In the 1990s, when I sold my business, what my game business, I was asked to come teach at Kellogg, and I was just starting my venture fund, and I said no because I was really busy, and I, my kids were young, and and I regretted it. I, like, I loved teaching. So I started off life as a high school teacher. I love teaching, I've always been a teacher. And when Linda Dara moved back from Booth over to Kellogg, she called me up and she said, hey, I'd love for you to teach. I went, yes, <laughs> you got me. And this was in, oh, I think it was like 2013, I started teaching there. i was so grateful. I, it is, for me it's a joy it's a joy to be in a room full of the smartest people on the planet you know just think about it my class has 65 students one smarter than the next my joke is i'm the dumbest guy in the room i didn't have the grades or the test scores to get into my own class and it is just a blast to be in a room talking about interesting topics with really smart people it's been so much fun
0: Mark, this has been amazing. Before I let you go, though, I've been a lifelong Chicagoan, so very highly anticipating your answer on this, but favorite Chicago restaurants, favorite Chicago food. whats I know you're a White Sox fan, so maybe you have some spots around that area, but what are your recommendations?
1: Well, I I don't know about recommendations, but when I was a kid, we had a tradition on your birthday you could go, you could pick the restaurant. That was my family's tradition. And I always pick ribs. I love ribs. And so Carson for me, Carson's ribs is, you know, when it's my birthday, that's my go-to. That's that's my favorite.
0: That's a great one. I have heard fantastic things about Carson's. And one last question I had, who would you say you read or you follow because you think they are one of the leading thought experts in venture? Who have been some of your influences throughout the years? Who do you look to to learn from as you constantly try and improve your craft?
1: I would say Brad Feld. And Brad has been an inspiration for us on a whole different, a lot of different levels. And I'll leave you with this. I'm actually, I've spent COVID writing a book with Mert Asiri from SwipeSense. I don't know if you know SwipeSense, if you know Mert. He he just sold his company. And we were inspired by Brad Feld. So Brad wrote a book called Venture Deals. If you're an entrepreneur and you're thinking about raising a round, this is must read. You, you This takes a term sheet, a venture capital term sheet, and it takes it line by line, paragraph by paragraph, and it explains in simple language from the point of view of the entrepreneur and the point of view of the VC, what it is. If you're going to be raising venture money, you have to read this book, Venture Deals. So we realized when Mert was going through his transaction, and it wasn't an easy transaction. And at the end of the transaction, I said to Mert, you know, you should write it down while it's still fresh in your mind in the spirit of giving back. So the important thing about math is our philosophy is it's not about us, it's about you, it's about the entrepreneur. And we are always trying to give back. And I said, in the spirit of giving back, so that the next time the company that acquired you does another acquisition, you can say, hey guys, when I went through, this is what I experienced, here's how we could make it better. And we realized that there's all these books about how to start a business and how to raise money like venture deals, and how to build teams and culture in the messy middle. But there was no books, there are very few books about how to sell your business. And so we're writing a book that'll be published, I think it's gonna come out in June, called Exit Right. And we interviewed over 50 CEOs who've gone through transactions, and we interviewed bankers and lawyers, and we interviewed corp dev leaders, from Facebook and Google and Microsoft and Twitch and Amazon. And we got everybody's point of view and perspective. And we called out best practices and wisdom for how to sell your business. And the book is called Exit Right. It'll come out. Look forward in June.
0: I will look for it. And Mark, hopefully we can get you back on Chicago Capital as part of the promotional tour. We'd be honored. And Mark, thank you so much. If people want to find you on you know, Twitter or on LinkedIn, where can they find you? And if they want to learn more about Math Venture Partners, where can they go?
1: Thanks, Matt. So mathventurepartners.com, M-A-T-H, venturepartners.com. And LinkedIn, just me, M-A-R-K-A-C-H-L-A-R. And I'm not on Twitter. Much longer conversation, but I got off of Facebook and I got off of Twitter a couple, two years ago, and it was my own personal social protest against what I thought were unethical business practices. But that is a longer conversation for another podcast.
0: For the next episode. Great, Mark. Thank you so much. Take care. Can't wait to have you on again.
1: Awesome. Thank you very much. It's been an honor.
0: If you are a founder seeking venture capital investment at the pre-seed through Series A stage, check out Manifold Group. We're a venture holding company based in Chicago with offices in Dallas, Los Angeles, and soon Atlantic Canada. We believe early stage private investments represent an excellent investment opportunity, but existing investment models in the space leave much to be desired. Manifold is a new model for growth in the new economy designed to create and capture value at the early stage through synergies across its venture fund, incubation and acceleration studio, and advisory firm. Learn more about Manifold at www.manifold.group and please tune in for the next Chicago Capital episode.